So Revelations chapter 21, starting in verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor pain, nor crying anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is the word of the Lord. Let's take a moment. Um, we are starting our vision series every single fall in this September. We start a vision series to really figure out yet once again and remind ourselves who we are as a community, who we desire to be as a church, and how we desire to live our, out our identity as followers of Jesus, as a family of missionary disciples in this city. And so we're going to do that this morning. And our vision and our mission is that we desire to see our community look more like heaven so that every single person in our city has a relationship with Jesus. That's ultimately what we desire. So I'd invite you this morning, just in this moment, to be still, to be quiet, to invite God to maybe bring this alive to you, and for you to begin to consider how you individually might begin to see that happen in your life and what part you can play, and then we'll get into how we're going to do that as a church community. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that we are not alone, that you are with us, and that you sustain us, you empower us. As it says in your word, you go before us, preparing us, preparing the ground, Lord, for the good work that you're calling us to, as it says in Ephesians 2.10. So I pray, Lord Jesus, and I thank you, but that we would be people that would walk out in obedience what it looks like to be the church here in this city, God, and that this would happen, that every person would come to have a relationship with you. God, we would live in such a way that heaven comes to this city. And so we do pray all of these things, thanking you for your great goodness to us and your grace, for your glory and for our good. In your name I pray, amen. Well, Frederick Nietzsche, the philosopher, was credited for this very famous line, God is dead. Maybe you're familiar with Frederick Nietzsche. Now, Nietzsche was... In, re in response and in context, was not purely saying this to those that were theists. He was also saying it to those that post-enlightenment had begun to believe that there was no God, but who were continuing to live with the values, morals, and principles that the Christian uh, foundation had really created. And in other words, what he was trying to do then was to say, you can't remove the footings that is God and leave the foundation of Christianity. You have to remove all of it and replace it with something else. Now, Carl Truman, in his uh, most recent book, The Rise and Fall of the My Modern Self, writes this about Nietzsche, and it will be on the screen for us. He writes, Nietzsche was no nihilist. Life is to be lived in a manner that brings about personal satisfaction. But that personal satisfaction is, to risk tautology, deeply personal. 
It is not a matter of conforming to some heteronomous law or learning to cultivate those virtues to which human nature lends itself as a means to the good life that has an objective transcendent status beyond the individual. He says, rather, it is a matter of creating one's own satisfaction and determining one's own form of the good life. Nietzsche, sophisticated thinker that he is, is really giving a critical account of what we might express in the demotic banalities of our time as be whoever you want to be and do whatever works for you. Now, I think we would all agree that this has become the dominant view of our culture, that not only is it enough to do away with belief in God, but also to remove anything that is any, in any ways a semblance or a reminder of the Christian foundation of morality, of family, and to redefine everything. And so that is the culture that we really find ourselves in. And so the question we then must ask ourselves is, as the Christian church, living within this culture, how do we live? How do we respond? How do we follow Jesus faithfully? Well, here's the short answer, and we're going to dig into it more. I believe that we lean into Jesus all the more. We lean into Jesus all the more. Here's my hypothesis for this morning. Because if the gospel of our culture is one of finding personal satisfaction in self, you and I, as the Christian church, have the opportunity and must live in such a way that communicates to the world that true satisfaction is found in Jesus. We cannot pretend or try to mimic our culture. We have to live in such a way that our culture says, you have the better alternative. We can truly encounter God, and that is why one of our new framed values within Church of the City is encounter. And that's what we're looking at this morning. What do I mean by that? Well, as God's adopted children, we long for daily, tangible encounters with him. As God's adopted children, we long for daily, tangible encounters with him. This is one of our new values as a church family. Four, if we desire to see our communities look more like heaven so that every person has a relationship with Jesus, you and I must be a people who are living in relationship with Jesus and a people who know our story. And so this morning, what I want to do is go through the scriptures at a very high-level view of saying, do we serve a God that wants to encounter us, and has he given you and I an opportunity to encounter him in a daily, tangible way? And so if you have your Bibles, would you go with me to creation, Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. Now, in the past, we've used the four scenes, the four acts of the scriptures, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration, to know the Christian story. Today, we're going to use the six acts. And they'll go like this, beginning with creation. So Genesis 1, verse 26 to 27. Do we serve a God who longs for encounters with us? Here's what we read. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. 
So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Jump ahead to Genesis 2, verses 15 and 17. We read this, that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. So what do we have here in creation? Well, God creates the world, and he places beings made in his image into this world, specifically Eden, as the pinnacle of his creation, commissioning them to partner with him in harnessing the raw material of the planet in order to make things beautiful. God is with his people, and his people are with their God. They feel no shame, and he then invites them to trust him by surrendering to him and thus avoiding death. What a beautiful picture in creation. And yet, what do we have next? Fall, or in other words, rebellion. Genesis 3, verses 3 to 7 This is Eve. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Verse 4. But the serpent, what does the serpent say to the woman? You will not surely die. Now he's a liar. They're dead. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Isn't this the lie that Satan repeatedly gives us? Don't trust God. Do it your own way. Verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened. They knew that they were naked, and they sewed figs leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Go forward to Genesis 3, verses 8 to 10. We're starting to see the consequences of their rebellion. And what do we see? And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Notice they suddenly feel this separation, both objectively and subjectively. They want to get away from God. They feel shame. What are the consequences Further, Genesis 3, verse 23 to 24, Therefore the Lord God sent them out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. What do we read here happens? Well, rather than trusting God, the first humans, what do they do? They rebel by trusting who? Themselves. And as a result, there is an immediate consequence. Walking with God in the garden and sensing his absolute and complete presence is gone. It's gone. Well, what's the next part of the story? Promise. God continues. He does not have to remember this. God continues to pursue the human beings he made in his image. And he then pursues a special people through the lineage of Abraham to be those he would pursue, encounter, and live in relationship with. You can fast forward to Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. 
and in you of all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Conclusion, God blesses Abraham and his offspring and remains faithful to them, even when they are unfaithful to him. And we read this throughout the history of the Old Testament. And yet, we also read in the Old Testaments that the prophets prophesy about the one who would come and bruise the head of Satan, making a way for all people to encounter God and then to live in relationship with him. Fast forward, redemption. And what do we read? Matthew 1, verse 23. One of the verses that at Christmas time we read, we celebrate, yet it's the truth every single day of the year. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Then in John 3, verse 16 to 18, we read, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And so what we come to understand and have the opportunity to believe is that through faith in Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection on our behalf, God has made a way for you and I to encounter him again and to live in relationship with him forever. Amen? We then have the church the church. What is then our responsibility? What is the commission that we have been given in light of this good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection? Matthew 28, verse 18 to 20, and Jesus came and he says to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And do you notice what he says next? And do you recall what he says next? Do you live in light of what he says next? And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. I am with you always. As I've said before, we do not need to pray, God, please be with me. If you were a follower of Jesus, if you are a disciple, he has told you, he has promised you, he is with you. And so prior to Jesus' second coming, he promises to his people, his disciples, his bride, the church, that he is always with them. And then he commissions them to spread the good news in word and deed of his plan to rescue and renew creation through his life, death, and his resurrection. And then the New Testament letters and epistles break down in further detail how the gospel is to be lived out in the lives of Jesus' disciples, his church And then how we can encounter his presence with us as we await his return. And that's not the end. The scriptures also tell us the final act, restoration. Sonia read it for us earlier, but we will look at it again. Revelation 21 verses 3 to 4. When Jesus returns, this is what we read. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. If you're a parent, maybe you've had one of those experiences where you wipe away the tear from your child's eye. This is what God will do with us. And he says, death shall be no more. 
Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. God is with us. We are with him, encountering his presence 24-7, his tangible presence with us. And so a day is coming in the future when Jesus will return and God's absolute presence will be with us forever. A day when we will be free and released from the grips of the fall of Satan, sin, and death. We will no longer long for encounters with God because we will be encountering him always. Wow. And so throughout the scriptures, we read the story of a God who is longing to be in relationship with us repeatedly, Pursuing in us, pursuing us in order that we might encounter Him, and so as God's adopted children, what do we long for? Daily, tangible encounters with Him, because as the church, we're still waiting for the day when He will return, and we're living on this side of Christ's life, death, and resurrection, but still in the reality that the kingdom of the world is still fighting up against the kingdom of God. But that doesn't mean we give up. It means we continue to pursue long for tangible daily encounters with him. Now the question then is, well, if God wants to be in relationship with us so that we might encounter him, what holds you and I back from that experience? What holds us back? First, Satan, the enemy, the devil. Now we read that on the cross and through his resurrection, Jesus has defeated Satan. But Satan still has an influence in our culture, does he not? I heard someone this week describe the influence of Satan now as disinformation, or more like Russia than it is a battle of World War II, where, you know, I have two forces coming against each other. He tells us lies that connect to some of our deepest desires as human beings. Did you not see that? We see that, right? In Genesis 3, in The Temptation, you can be like God, but God had already made them in his image. And yet he goes after them in such a way to try to go after their deepest desire. He twists. He's all about disinformation. Taking the truth and spinning it and making it a lie. We read in 1 Peter 5.8 that your adversary, the devil, prowls, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He wants us to go become apathetic. He doesn't want us to pursue tangible encounters. At times when you maybe are alone in the presence of Jesus, leaning in, he wants to distract you, and he'll use anything to do it just to dissuade you from touching God in those moments. So there's certainly the influence of Satan, of the devil, but then there's our own sin. Now, I define sin as delighting, resting in, and trusting anything or anyone other than God. It's not simply acting in a way that God says we should not act. It's resting in our hearts in a way that is not delighting and resting in God. For out of the condition of the heart, as Jesus says, our mouth speaks or we act. So it's really at a heart level. And where that comes from, as I said, is delighting, resting, and trusting anyone or anything that is not God. And some of us, if we're honest, here are some of the, the ways that we, that we can step into not wanting these encounters. One is legalism. This is when we live in such a way that we believe that we can impress God, that we can earn our own way to heaven with Jesus. It's putting law above the gospel. 
Others of us in our, in our sin, delighting or resting in anyone or anything other than God, it's liberalism. It's removing law completely from gospel. It says, well, Jesus is love and to the law doesn't matter. He doesn't care if you live in one way or another. Yet that's not the gospel either. It's putting law above gospel. Some of us live in such a way because we have these longings in our hearts. We have these des- desire for attachment that God gave us to pursue and to live in relationship with him. But what we do is we substitute that desire and we find other things that we become attached to, whether it be our jobs, whether it be people that we're in relationship with, other places that we look for our identity, finding personal satisfaction in self rather than in God. Other times we struggle with compartmentalism, that we're like, okay, I'm with Jesus on Sundays at 9 a.m. Or then maybe when I'm with my community, but he's not with me 24-7. So there's certainly the reality of sin in our lives, but then in, in our hearts, but then also there's the influence of the world. You know, we have our, the view of our culture, as I talked about earlier, Nietzsche summarizing that for us in Truman in his book. We can begin to live in such a way that, that we mimic the culture around us, even deism, which is the belief that there is a God, but the view that God created then stepped away, and so we don't live in such a way that we recognize the reality of God wanting daily tangible encounters with us. You know, he started, he started everything, but then he stepped away, and so I now live in such a way as to giving, no, he's not there, certainly can be an influence. And yet in the midst of this, to go back to my hypothesis earlier, that if the gospel of our culture is one of personal satisfaction, you and I have the opportunity and must live in such a way that communicates to the world that true satisfaction is found in Jesus through what daily tangible encounters with him. When we trust when Jesus says in John 6 verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Or how about John 7, verse 37? If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Or how about Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 to 30? Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. This is not a one-time invitation when we respond to the gospel. This is a daily invitation that we would come and rest with him. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, how do we prioritize the desire then as God's children for tangible encounters with him? How do we go after that Recognizing that if this is a desire, we have to ask ourselves, is this a desire that I want for my life? Because there's competing desires in our hearts, right? But is this, this, is, is this the ultimate desire, the best desire? And therefore, how do we live in such a way, prioritize things, be formed by spiritual practices that allow us as a community to be a people that live this out? three things primarily in our church community that we want to prioritize as our values. Number one is prayer. Prayer. Our aim is to be a people who pray. If you don't believe that God wants encounters with you, if you don't believe God's involved in the daily reality of your life, you don't pray. You don't pray because you really objectively believe he's he's not going to do anything. So it's just me doing the thing, doing my life. 
We want to be a people who pray. We believe that prayer changes reality by moving the hand of God. And so what we do is we pray for his will to be done here in Guelph, the surrounding area in this world, because we hope to see God's will be done in our communities. And as we pray to know his will and call upon his powerful hand to renew all things. This is what we want. This is our desire. This is our value. Secondly, we want to practice being a people of worship. Our aim, you know, sometimes we think about worship, we only think of Sunday morning singing. The scripture's view of worship is far more than that. Our aim is to offer the whole of our being to God in worship. While singing in song is one way to worship, we believe that we are invited to worship God in every aspect of our lives. Every single aspect, delighting, resting in, trusting God, and therefore pointing to him rather than taking credit, rather than pointing that he must increase, I must decrease. Living in that reality, may his name be lifted high. And then thirdly, we want to practice this in communities. Our aim is to live life on life and life in community, encountering God with and through one another. Because this is also where it happens. It's just where two or three are gathered, there I am with you. So often we take the scriptures, we take the New Testament, we take other parts, and we, we so personalize it so it has maybe personal application, but we forget that it was written to community, to people following Jesus together. And so in order for us to best understand, to best figure out how we actually practice the words of Jesus, the writings of the New Testament, the story that we understand from the old, we need to think about it through practicing out in community. Jesus' example was calling men and women to follow him, to become his apprentices. He could have encountered his father on his own, and he had time where he stepped aside. I challenge you to go through the Gospels and take note of every time Jesus steps aside to be with his father. That happened. But he also called people to follow him, to be his disciples, to be his apprentices, to learn a way of life and to grow together. And so he insists that we must also walk this out, encounter God in community with other people. And so here's our benediction for this morning. Would you please stand? And then we're going to respond in song. My hope and prayer is that our church family would also desire these things, that we would also long for daily tangible encounters with him. This is the goal. This is the direction that we are headed in. If you have more questions, we would love to talk about it. If you have not believed in Jesus, if you are not following Jesus in word and deed, we'd also love to talk to you about what it means to truly follow Jesus so that you too might experience daily tangible encounters with the creator of the universe. But with a desire to see our communities look more like heaven so that every person has a relationship with Jesus, may we as God's children, long for daily, tangible encounters with him through prayer, worship, and community. You are loved.